In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Just up the road on Airport Boulevard, there's a barbecue joint that if you walk inside to the eating area, there is an enormous wall dedicated to a mural, 20 feet high, and there you will find this picture in which it is said, barbecue may not be the road to world peace, but it's a start. (laughs) And the person who said that is the image whose face you see there. That's Anthony Bourdain. He died in 2018. He was more than a foodie. He was more than a chef. He was someone who was trying to recover for people the experience and the importance of eating properly, of understanding that it was more than merely just gathering sustenance for your day. And I know even as we speak about the war in Ukraine and about people who wonder where their next meal could, should come from, to, to, maybe you think it's almost obscene to bring up somebody who put such a premium on talking about food, but I'm, I'm, I'm quite sure that anybody who is not in harm's way would nod their head in agreement that there is something to food that is more than just nourishment. I want to show you a really brief scene from Anthony Bourdain uh, where he visited a space uh, that's almost sacred in, in this part of the world. And I want you to listen very carefully to every word he chooses with the person he's engaging with in this place that you are familiar with, but perhaps had never taken as seriously as he does in this moment. It is indeed marvelous. An irony-free zone where everything is beautiful and nothing hurts. Where everybody, regardless of race, creed, color, or degree of inebriation, is welcomed. Its warm yellow glow, a beacon of hope and salvation, inviting the hungry, the lost, the seriously hammered all across the South to come inside. A place of safety and nourishment. It never closes. It is always, always faithful, always there, for you. When I was a kid, I was obsessed with this place because I wanted to be a chef. And this is the only place that I've ever been to where I actually watched people cook. This was action to me. Because I would see these people cooking at a pace and, and cooking for people who were completely out of control, but still providing hospitality. It was one of the things that really helped me fall in love with, with cooking. Waffle House. Yes, I can't believe course, I didn't know about this. I am unbelievably in spite of my world travels, new to the wonders of the Waffle House and unfamiliar with its ways. The terminology, for instance, is new to me. Uh, Now look, I'm looking at my hash brown and I am already confused and enticed. Here's the thing, you can't can't go all in. You want everything. I I need to make a choice. (laughs) I think there's a connection that you have with that, right? If you've listened to that, if you listen to that number of times like I have this week, you, you don't realize how many analogies there are between what you just heard and about what we're going to do. Everything, this is the center of attention, not, not this, not what I'm saying, not me, not anything. All of this is. We've come to do one thing today, and that is to partake of, of the body and blood of Jesus. And in many ways, what you heard there about, it doesn't matter about your background or your record or your reputation or your socioeconomic level. This table is for those who believe their need of him. And what Anthony Bourdain sought to do in a number of ways was to recover for us a sense of taking seriously whatever is set before you. 
In other words, whether you're going to the Waffle House or the Ritz-Carlton, you want to eat and drink worthily of what has been prepared for you. That should sound familiar. Because it's the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians who is warning that early church about how they have come to take what they're doing here and to do so thoughtlessly. In other words, there is a way to eat unworthily of what is set before you and a way to eat worthily of what is set before you. The passage that we're going to look at this morning as we accelerate towards Easter is Jesus setting a table for the first time in a way that no one had ever heard it before. In fact, he's going to do a spin on the Passover meal that no one has ever done before, such that there is a theologian who said this, the most famous Jew of all, summons the orchestra, brings the music to a crescendo, and then rearranges the melody. We need to press into that. We need to, in the spirit of Anthony Bourdain, come to take seriously what it is that we're doing. And it it, it may be that you just come and you do this and you walk out and you go, okay, been there, did that, what was that for? Maybe there's something more than than just going through the motions. This has been a very helpful thing for me this week, just to think, what does it mean what we're doing here? We have come to consider what it means to eat and drink worthily of a meal to remember. And we're going to consider four things that we bring as gifts to this table. You don't bring a loaf of bread, you don't bring a bottle of wine, he's got that covered. But there are four things that I think we bring to this table, we'll call them gifts, but they're a funny version of what we might call gifts. But I think as we bring them, we are more mindful of what this table is, and we will take it more seriously as we do. So we're in Mark chapter 14. We'll start in verse 12. I wonder if you might stand as we consider what he had to say. Mark 14, starting in verse 12. And on the first day of the unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of that house, The teacher says, Where's my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who was eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, It's one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, 
and will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. It's the Passover. Everyone that can is going to converge on Jerusalem to celebrate one thing, to celebrate the story, to celebrate a moment of Israel's story in which they were liberated from Egyptian bondage. But in the moments leading up to that celebration of the Passover, Jesus has already set himself apart as a marked man. And both he and they know that for him to walk back into Jerusalem is like sticking a stick in the hornet's nest. It's dangerous. He will attract attention to himself, and yet Jesus is undaunted. We will gather, is his intention. We will remember, we will reunite, we will feast. And the disciples will not take no for an answer. And so they say, all right, how do you want us to prepare? And Jesus clearly, in the instructions that he gives, either has a plan in place or a knowledge of what's going to happen. And so he says, all right, go to the city, and there you're going to find a man. That man will have a jar of water. Okay, it's a big city. You find a jar of water, follow him. He's going to take you to a house. And at that point, you're going to go to the owner of that house, and you're going to say, all right, where's the guest house for for the teacher wants us to celebrate the Passover there? And he's going to say, come right up here. Everything will be furnished for you. And so they go, and they find the dude with the water jar, and the guy takes them to the house, and they say, um, the teacher, he says, you've got a guest room? And he goes, oh yeah, follow me, upstairs. There it is. And what do they do? Sure enough, it's all there, booyah, it's all put together. And you got to think, they're looking at each other, did he, did he call ahead? <laughs> it's all just as he said. And I think just in that brief exchange between Jesus' instruction to them and their discovery that it was just as he had said, that what we're meant to see there is more than just a retelling of the events that led up to the celebration of the Passover. I think we're meant to see something in particular. That Jesus has left nothing to chance. That he knows the end from the beginning. That he is aware and able to orchestrate matters according to his intention. I think what we're meant to see is this, that Jesus is trustworthy and he has his hand in things. He's not just an observer, a spectator who just sort of watches things unfold as they will and just hopes they go in a certain direction. That inasmuch as he respects the free choices that you and I are making. He respects them, but he is not bound by them. 
I think what we're meant to see in this early part of the passage is that Jesus has his hand in things. That he is present. That there is a a degree of sovereignty involved in his introduction into into humanity. That he will intervene as he sees fit. And as soon as I say that word, I know that there are more than a dozen of you in this room, if not my own heart, that goes, yeah, um, but what about fill in the blank? There's a war in Ukraine, folks. This world has just gone through two years of a pandemic. Every third story is about racial strife in some place. And we all kind of look at our institutions, if not including the church at sometimes, with a little bit more suspicion than perhaps we once did. And so to hear us even argue that Jesus is meant for us to see that he is involved, that he's, he's got his hand in things. I, I know why Kate Bowler, the, the, the wonderful theologian at Duke, would, would write a book called Everything Happens for a Reason and the Other Lies that I Have Loved. We know why she would write a book like that. But remember, folks, inasmuch as Jesus is is out to show his disciples and to us that he has a hand in things, let's be really clear. Jesus is not, he doesn't feel this compulsion to oversimplify the way in which God is involved in history. He doesn't have to assign a discernible point or purpose to everything that happens. Let me just remind you, let me just sort of step out of Mark's gospel account for a moment and drop you into Luke's account from Luke chapter 13. And and he tells the story of the Tower of Siloam. Here's a a rendition of it by um, James Tissot. He says, you remember that, that tower that fell and people died? He doesn't ascribe any points to that. He doesn't give any reason for why it happened. He doesn't suggest that those people who died in that tragedy were any more deserving of that moment than anybody that averted it. He's just saying this. There's no time like the present to repent. It just happened. And it doesn't mean that God, Jesus doesn't believe that God is sort of, his hands are tied or he was busy elsewhere. It just happened. And maybe it's not our point anymore to try to find a point or a purpose to every single moment that we find in as much as we still believe Jesus has a hand in things. He is present. But that's why we can, we can listen to tragedy through the eyes of, of somebody that I've shared with you before. Sarah Condon, she's, uh, she's from the South. She lost both of her parents in a car crash last year. And she wrote at the end of her essay, she she said this, In my darkest hours of grief, God has made his face to shine upon me. I know this to be absolutely true. God knew this was coming. God has not been surprised. You may think that's an evasive way of putting it, but I I think it's spot on. We're meant to see that, that Jesus has his hand in things as the Lord. And that God is not surprised by what befalls us or what blesses us. What's the implication of that as we come to this table, that we eat and drink worthily of it? I think it's this. If God has his hand in things, then you know what you need to bring to this table when you come to it? You need to bring your worries. I need to bring my worries. I've got mine, you've got yours. The stuff that keeps you up at night. The stuff that preoccupies you during the day. The stuff that you brought with you into this room. 
You need to gather those up. You, didn't, you need to name them for what they are. You need to acknowledge them as worries and, and stop pretending that they're not consuming you. And you need to bring them here. It's a funny gift to bring to the table, but that's, like, that's how you know you're eating and drinking worthily is that you're bringing to your attention that which you are worried about and you bring it. A funny gift, right? But you bring it. If he has his hand in things, then it is both proper and necessary for us to eat and drink worthily by bringing our worries to the table. It's just the first gift you bring. The second is this. Preparations are in order. The table is set. Everybody arrives. Jesus is ready. He says to his disciples, I have longed to eat this meal with you, this Passover meal. And then what does Jesus do? He drops a bomb in the middle of the, of the meal. And, and you, when he says what he says, you almost think, party's over. Turn out the lights, Don Meredith. What's going on? What does he say? We're all eating. We're all reclining. We're all having a good time. We're all remembering Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt. And then Jesus says, oh, by the way, I'm about to be, by, I'm about to be given over to be betrayed and one of you is going to do it. <laughs> How's that for news? And the disciples, it's par for the course for them. You know what do they do? Their, their first instinct is not to say, oh, Lord, how do we prevent this? How do we protect you? You know what their first instinct is? Surely it's not me that is going to do that. Surely not I, right? It's all about them. Sounds just like me, man. Sounds just like you trying to exonerate ourselves from any kind of, you know, false accusation before we're ever actually concerned for the one upon whom all of this is going to fall. Surely not me. And in that moment, when everybody in the, around the table was starting to worry about themselves, the, 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 the focus of the moment there in the paragraph is what Jesus says in verse 21 and 22. He says this, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. That's the focus. I think what we're meant to see with Jesus uttering that phrase in the midst of having told his disciples that one of them is going to betray him, it's that you and I live in a very complex but moral world. That God is sovereign over things. As it is written, the Son of Man, it's about to go down on him. There's a plan that's unfolding, that's being hatched, that was predetermined, that's going to happen. And yet, the one who betray him is not off the hook. The God is somehow, you know, get your mind around this one. Good luck. God is somehow sovereign over the way things are, and yet we are still accountable for the choices that we make. You will spend the rest of your days in Jesus trying to wrap that idea around your, wrap your mind around that idea. And good luck. It's not unlike what Peter tells everybody who's in earshot of him in Acts chapter 2. He says this, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. There's the accountability, the sovereignty thing. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He's got it under his control, and yet inasmuch as he worked things out according to his plan, those who had secondary causality in that moment, those who exerted their will to bring about a certain effect, yeah, they're not off the hook. 
We live in a complex yet moral world. You only have three choices, really. You can either believe that God is entirely sovereign and think, you know what, Nothing's, you know, nothing should be up to me. I, I can't be held accountable for anything. You can, you can think that way. Or you can say, um, everything comes down to the choices you and I make, in which case God should probably resign from his post. He's not really qualified to call himself sovereign over the universe. Or you can say, there is no God, my choices really don't matter, there really is nothing, in which case you're going to have to ask yourself, why are you angry about things that seem so unjust and immoral to you? Or you can pick this one. Those are your options. Some people wonder, uh, was Judas just sort of the wild card? Like, was it like, you know, smash, high, you know, high pop the center field? Can we get under it? Can we get under it? Can we get, okay. Did, did we not see Judas coming? No, though they saw Judas coming. Now, did Judas know that he was going to be that guy at the front end? Probably not. At some point, he flips. Why? We can only speculate. But of Judas' story, there's one thing that's certain. Judas reminds us of this. Our capacity for self-deception is amazing. The ability for me to tell myself certain things that I want to believe for no other reason that I want to believe it, it's astonishing. What is that part of the story and, and that reality that all things are under his hand and yet we're still accountable for our actions and, and in those actions we have an amazing capacity for self-deception? How does that all deal with this? How do we eat and drink worthily of the table in light of that? Not only do we bring our worry, you know what else you bring to this table? You bring your folly. You bring your sins. And we do that every week, right? I'm, I'm, I'm talking about the, the, the sins, the errors, the, the things that you regret that, that, that sometimes are kind of like, you know, you, you, watch a, you, you start um, a pot of water boiling and you leave it unattended and then it boils over and spills and flash and bang and stuff like you didn't see it happening and just did. And that's, those sins are like that. And then there are other sins where it's like it was premeditated and like you were putting together the pieces of a weapon in order to do what you were going to do. Those are all kinds of sins. Each week when we gather for this table, we confess them publicly and privately. And, and as we've said before, look, you're going to sit down with a table that somebody made you a meal, but you had a blow-up with them 10 minutes earlier? Do you really think you can enjoy that meal in a casual fashion without at least addressing the elephant in the room before you eat? No, you can't. To this table, you bring your folly. It's a gift. You gather it up. You name it, you give it words or just groans, you acknowledge it, and you bring it to this table. You bring your worry, you bring your folly. Neither of those are possible, though, unless you bring a third gift. And it really is the focus of these four paragraphs. It's what Jesus says this Passover is about. Remember, what's the Passover about? It's about Israel being liberated from its slavery and protected by the blood of a lamb. Imagine this scene. Next Thanksgiving, you stand up, and you've been tasked with, I don't know, giving the speech, carving the turkey, whatever it, might, whatever it is you eat. And you stand to your feet, 
and you look proudly upon all those assembled, and you say to them, I was responsible for helping us to get here on the Mayflower, arriving safely with minimal loss of life. I am here. I am the one to help establish that first colony in which we faced those brutal winters and was finally able to create a home for us, having avoided and escaped religious persecution back home. You're welcome. Imagine standing up in front of your assembled crew and saying that and taking credit for whatever it is that we're remembering at Thanksgiving. People would look at you like, he had a little before, apparently. That line from that theologian at the front of the sermon who said, the most famous Jew, he, he assembles the orchestra, he, he brings it to a crescendo, and then he changes the melody. Jesus is saying in this moment, this meal, it's about me. This bread, it's about me. This wine, my blood, it's about me. Either Jesus is the most arrogant egotist you could imagine among those from whom a religious tradition and faith emerge, or he is something with whom, for whom we have to reckon with. Because Jesus is recasting what the whole Passover meal is about. He's not replacing it. He's not pretending that what they're doing is, is silly or foolish or outdated. He's saying that the Passover of that day was anticipating a very different kind of Passover of this moment. The body, that the bread and the wine that they're about to partake of that was supposed to signify that moment in which they remember Israel's liberation from slavery. Now, this bread, this wine, it's him. And the liberation he means to bring is a liberation from our own sin. It's about a liberation from our own corruption. It is a means by which we are reconciled to the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith. It is the one who then assigns us to the privileged task of living for him in a world and bringing about mercy and justice and humility in and through us and perhaps in spite of us. He is saying, yours and my greatest need is peace with the Lord. That's what we call the gospel. He is saying in that moment, our greatest need is peace. Now, let me, let me put that in a little bit of context. There, you, you may have heard of this psychologist of the last century named Maslow. And he came up with this whole hierarchy of needs if you're a human. And isn't that a wonderfully multicolored graphic from Wikipedia? And he, and he identifies all sorts of things that, that humans need in order to kind of flourish and to be fully engaged and, and to be, you know, to borrow a word, actualized. And, and those, some of those earliest things, just food, shelter, water. You don't have that. Your, your world is awful. Right now, we, 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 we have no concept of what our friends in Ukraine are feeling right now. But there is nothing guaranteed for them. Everything has been taken out from underneath them. And that's true in Yemen. That's true in Myanmar. That's true of the Uyghurs in China. There are millions of people who know that feeling. But Maslow in that moment identified all sorts of things that we require, that we need in order to kind of feel full and 
flourishing and all those things. And, And at the top of his list is this thing called transcendence. The idea that there is something more than anything that you can measure, anything that you can be nourished by, anything that you can take in or appreciate. There's some sort of connection to something that is greater than you to which we're all accountable. Transcendence. Let me bring up one other name. I've mentioned him recently again, Viktor Frankl. He survived the death camps during World War II. He wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And he says, you know where meaning comes from? You find it in the ability not to tie your meaning to your circumstances, not to tie your meaning to even any hopes of things getting better. Your meaning has to come from somewhere outside. It has to be received. It has to be anchored to something that is beyond you and your moment. Whether it's Maslow or Frankel, Jesus is saying to us at the Passover meal, which he now says about himself, The first Lord's Supper, he's saying that yours and my greatest need is peace with the Father. Does that mean we don't need food, water, shelter? No. Jesus says, I know, I know you need these things. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. He knows those things. And if anything, we as the church who believe that our greatest need is met in him by the peace of God, that is the one that compels us to meet all those other needs on Maslow's hierarchy. To show love, to show belonging, to provide for food and shelter and all those things. But Jesus in this moment is out to tell us this. If you don't have that peace, you have nothing. What is the implication for us when it comes to eating and drinking worthily of this meal? We bring our worry. We bring our folly. But we also have to bring to this table an acknowledgement of our poverty that there's all sorts of things this week that you enjoyed. Some of you did spring break, and you had a ball, and that was great, and and others of you are just glad to be back from spring break, whatever you did, and that's all good, and you have things that are on your horizon that you're looking forward to, and that's all good, and it's all great, and you should celebrate it, and you should give thanks for them as gifts, and yet Jesus is saying, look, if that's all you have and not my peace, then all of that is really fleeting, and you you have hitched your pony to something that could end up in the ditch tomorrow. You and I have to acknowledge every time we come to this table that apart from him and what he's done for us in himself, by his body, by his blood, we are essentially impoverished people. And it's where we have to acknowledge that poverty every time we come here to help us and eat and drink worthily of that. There's one last thing we bring. One last item that I pick up from what happens in the last paragraph. Jesus has dropped the bomb about the betrayal and he's just said, take and eat. This is my body and my blood. It's given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he says one other thing that makes you wonder, I don't think Jesus has thrown too many parties because he keeps doing things that make it sound like this is not much of a party. He looks at all his disciples and he says, "Um, all of you are going to scatter into the night like like rats jumping off a sinking ship. You are not going to stand up for me. You're you're not going to speak up for me. You're not going to risk anything for me. You're going to hide. You're going to hide. And then he quotes Zechariah. And Peter looks at me and goes, they might, 
<laughs> Not me. And Jesus looks at Peter as if to say, Oh, Peter, if only. By the time this night is over, three times, you're going to treat me as if you never knew me. And I think what we're meant to see in that moment is what you heard in the prelude to our worship. You are not as strong as you think you are. But the only thing that rivals our capacity at self-deception is our capacity for weakness when the pressure is turned up. Is our capacity for treating the Lord as if he never existed or that he has no call upon me, he has no claim upon me, as if to say to him, I don't think you really get it and I don't really think I want to do anything for you. That's what we're capable of. And yet I'd like you to imagine for just a moment if you're Jesus and you know that everybody is going to turn tail and run in your darkest hour. And yet you still serve them. You still gather up the meal. You still wash their feet. You still look them in their eyes longingly saying, I have longed to have this meal with you. You know what they're going to do to you and still you do everything. He loved them to the end. That's who he is. That's how he sees them. That's how he sees you. In spite of their desire to abandon him, he will not wash his hands of them. And that is just the smallest yet most potent picture of his grace. What are the implications of that truth in eating and drinking worthily of this table? You bring your worry. You bring your folly. You bring your sense of poverty, but lastly, you bring your frailty. Whatever it was in your week before you came to this table, you gather it up. You name it. Those moments in which, Jesus, Jesus who? And you acknowledge it at this table. You, you think that might be like, how rude to say those things or to even bring those things to mind as you're going to come to this table. no. That's doing right by him, by being honest with yourself and him. Do you see why to come to this table worthily requires a little bit of preparation? To, to bring your, your worry and your folly and your poverty and your frailty all in like real time in the few minutes that it takes for us to pray and for you to come forward and receive, like that kind of like, how do I get all that in in a round of time? That's, that's why we tell you like a week in advance. That's why, why if you've never done it before, that maybe it becomes a new practice for you. you. If you know communion is happening on Sunday, then last night you, you set aside time to, to gather up those things, whether any or all of them, the things that you're worried about, the things that you're full of folly about, the, the sense of poverty that maybe you fail to acknowledge or the sense of frailty that you have. Maybe that's what you do on the night before. That's, that's how we eat and drink worthily. Otherwise, it... It really does become a ritual without any meaning or meaning that just feels rather inaccessible. I started with Bourdain. I'm going to end with Bourdain. Hat tip to Amy Donaldson to help me find this one. But he said this that I think demonstrates and speaks to what the communion is about 
perfection. Meals make the society hold the fabric together in lots of ways that were charming and interesting and intoxicating to me. The perfect meal or the best meals occur in a context that frequently has very little to do with the food itself. <laughs> Friends, th- this stuff, unremarkable. <laughs> it, I would think it's more likely a robot made this than any person did. But what that points to and who you're sharing it with and the meaning suffused within it, oh, that meal will make a society. And that meal is meant to ravish us, to intoxicate us with a kind of love that we think is just a pipe dream that is just the the fabrication of all of our wishes. That's what this table is for. And even if we are numb to the moment, even if we go through all the motions in our adulthood, I, I assure you it is not a waste of time. Your effort is not in vain. And so right now we're going to pray. And then we're going to practice a part of it in real time. We'll be quiet. We'll confess our folly. But we'll remember the way in which he handles our frailty. He knows your frame. He knows you are dust. He knows you have no forgiveness apart from him. Let's pray. Let's eat and drink worthily. Jesus, could it be? Is that what you've done? Is that what this is for? We, we acknowledge that uh, sometimes we wonder what we're all doing in this moment. What does it mean to to eat and drink worthily. We don't want to do it wrong, and we know that we're sinners, and so we know we can't come to this place sinless, and we know that you realize that. So, Lord Christ, we ask that you would help us to discern your body, what you have done. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would help us to discern your body, this people that you have come for, to whom we have become a family, from whom we receive and to whom we give and, and with whom we discover what it means to make mistakes and to mend fences. Lord Jesus, would you help us to incrementally move a little bit more towards what it means to participate in this meal with all the seriousness and comfort and compulsion that it intends. Would you make the society and hold us together and to bless this church to help it to grow in ways that matter that we might be salt and light where we go. In your name we pray. Amen.